Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on thebigscreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Hey, it's another round of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Welcome back around. It's good to be with you. It's Joel Hoover. Hey, Brooks joining you once again, filling in. It's Moondance. Gotta be a coincidence, I would think. Yeah, that's... uh. What, what does that say about Rick and Nick and their habits? That, that that says very bad things to me about their habits. Aye, laddie, I think it was a touch of the old Irish flu. Ah, uh, oh boy. Well, because they are out for whatever circumstances once again, Dave Brooks and I are here once again for another round of Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, the podcast through Paul Bunyan Broadcasting, and we are... Very pleased to be sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters. Make sure you get on over to the Bemidji Theaters. They're in big deals as well now, which is really great. So get online if you're on paulbunnybroadcasting.com, which you have to be in order to be listening to this podcast. If you go to Big Deals and you click on it, we've now got an opportunity for you to be able to uh, get tickets for the Bemidji Theaters at a, at a slight discount on there on big deals. Um, and plus, just going to the Bemidji Theaters in general, great, great place to go and see what is currently out in the movies. One thing to keep in mind with the big deals is that a big deal certificate counts as a pass. Movie theaters, uh, especially with new releases for the first week or two that they're out, sometimes they won't allow passes, and that'll include big deals. But you give it another week or so, passes are welcome and no problem. And try this one out. $5 Tuesdays. You can even go to the snack bar, grab yourself a soda. They'll give you popcorn for free. Mm-hmm. You go for Tuesdays at $5 tickets, plus the big deals on top of that. Ka-ching, ka-ching in your pocket, baby. That's a pretty great idea. Yeah, so make sure you check that out. Uh, we're very pleased to be sponsored by Bemidji Theaters and have their their support and their help here with this podcast so today, Dave, um, we're, we've done a lot of topical discussions in the past few episodes of, of Rick and Nick, and there are some news items coming yep. along here, both with movies that have been successful. We're not going to go too deep into movies that have flopped or have not done very well at the we'll, box office. We'll probably do a post-summer moratorium. Yeah, moratorium. But we'll wait till September-ish to do something like that. That's a good way to, to put it, going through the graveyard of movies that... Oh, oh we'll do boy. the good and the bad. We'll talk yes. about The Mummy and we'll talk about, you know, Avengers Ugh. and we'll, we'll talk the good things. Yes. Um, Why did I say Avengers? It's not even an Avengers movie this summer. More, I think I more so the yeah, more so the individual ones. Yeah, Guardians in particular. But we're going to discuss a movie here on this episode that has really hit the headlines as of late and has just been fantastic at the box office. The critics have loved it. We're going to discuss Wonder Woman here in this movie and go a little bit more in depth into talking about Wonder Woman and what it means as far as DC movies and female superhero movies, superheroine movies moving forward. Plus, we want to discuss some news that came out last week regarding Star Wars, and in particular regarding a directorial change at the helm of the upcoming Han Solo spinoff. A couple of big news items that have been at the forefront here of the month of June yeah. uh, in the movie world. So we're, we're going to discuss them a little bit at length um, with Wonder Woman regarding those topics that I brought up. And with regards to the Han Solo movie, 
movies in the past that have changed directors during production, it does not always necessarily mean a death knell no, for that movie. No. Because there are some great movies, and this list may surprise you a little bit, of great movies that had one or even multiple director changes that took place, and yet they were still fantastic movies. Now, obviously this won't apply too much with our Star Wars conversation, but as far as Wonder Woman and something that happens throughout Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, spoiler warnings. We are going to talk about the movies that have already come out, and that means spoilers. If you don't want to know how things are going to go or what that thing that's going to happen that's really awesome, be forewarned. Spoilers lay ahead. Indeed, especially with regards to Wonder Woman, which we are going to kick things off with. Wonder Woman is is now down to number three in the overall list. Actually, I think it was a, a tie. As, You're talking about this week in the box office? Yeah, according to the weekend estimates um, from Box Office Mojo, it was it was just about at a tie um, with Cars 3. Transformers, the, the most recent Transformers movie, is at the top of the list as far as the box office. But Wonder Woman has now become the highest grossing release within the new DC Extended Universe mm-hmm. that, that they've come up with. Um, and it's not surprising at all because the numbers have been have been staggering. It is now the third highest grossing movie in all of 2017 behind Beauty and the Beast and Guardians of the Galaxy 2, um, at, at least in regards to uh, domestically. It is... Uh, at number three worldwide it's up to number five and that is just that just underlines how incredible it has been uh here since it was released at the beginning of the month and not just from a box office standpoint from a critical standpoint as well wonder woman has just been absolutely sensational and you got a chance to go see it you and i yeah. have both seen it what did you think dave well i can tell you this uh expanding on more of what you were saying this is the one while guardians of the galaxy is currently the number one movie of the box office this summer um that's it's kind of done it's kind of played out so whatever it's going to pull in it's going to pull in wonder woman is still playing at theaters still number three at the box office what three four weeks out into release um, the reviews are fantastic. The performances are fantastic. And a couple other noteworthy things that I am woman, hear me roar is what this movie is all about. And not just on screen. It's, uh, the first female centric superhero movie to re- be released. I think ever, um, of a major comic book character. You can look at things like say tank girl and other obscure comic books. So Catwoman didn't count. Oh, do you, you saw that movie <laughs> then she's not a superhero. She's a super villain. So there's a well, difference that's there. True. Yeah. A Harley Quinn movie. Well, that would be in that camp also. Um, but the reviews are fantastic. It's also a female director, Patty Indeed. Jenkins. Yep. And I think it just set a record as far as highest or second highest grossing female directed movie ever. Um, so the, 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 what's coming out from this movie is fantastic, especially when you consider what's been coming out with DC and the fact that, uh, last year's Batman Superman, it was the Wonder Woman part that actually stole that movie out from underneath Batman and Superman in the wake of the Nolan movies. And I mean, it's Superman. come on, she stole that movie. Now she's got one of her own. It does fantastic. And she'll be back here this fall in Justice League. And the movie's fantastic. And that's what's that's really something to take away from this. This is a big, big success on multiple levels mm. with, with this movie. Because first and foremost, let's let's just strip everything away from it. The the DC elements, the 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 female elements. This was a great movie. Yeah. Period. This was a really, really great movie. I was I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was a popcorn flick. 
but it had a lot of substance to it yeah. as well. You you could definitely say that it blended those two things together really well. When you bring those elements back into into play, this was huge because it succeeded in being just the kind of movie that DC needed after how everything went last year with Batman versus Superman the the lukewarm reception on on Man of Steel before that w- with building toward Justice League DC needed to get the ball rolling a little bit they more than got it rolling it's it's on a on a freight train now in a in a very big way it was a very good movie from a DC standpoint it was a very good movie from a female hero standpoint as well and yet it didn't try to be either of those too hard it it went out there and tried to be a great movie and and at the same time it succeeded in being both of those things it didn't try to bash you over the head with we're going to change direction here with dc we're going to change direction with how this looks it didn't try to bash you over the head with we've now got a female superhero on the screen no it succeeded in being both of those things and it succeeded while not trying too hard to do those things. That was what impressed me the most about the movie, was that it did both of those things very well. It still had DC elements to it. You know, with, with the DC characters, I was thinking about this a little bit when we were getting ready for this this episode. They are of a more mythological background. A lot of them are. I mean, Batman, obviously, there's there's a mythology behind Batman, but he's he's still this, this everyday, well, not exactly an everyday guy, billionaire in Gotham City. These other characters, they have more of a mythological element attached to them. Superman, from the man from Krypton and all the things that he brings with him. Wonder Woman, being from the Amazons and, and having all these, these mythological elements to her character. It's always going to have this element of more CGI that comes with it, having to do a little bit more visually to make it work, which was kind of one of the challenges I think that they had to deal with in Man of Steel and as well in in Batman versus Superman. Wonder Woman it, it still felt like a bit of a gritty it, it had that gritty World War 1 element to it and yet it still fit in the the mythological sense to it as well and it it didn't do it I I think quite as loudly as the previous two movies in the DC extended universe had done. And it, it did that really well, but that was a big challenge I think with DC's previous movies and they did it pretty well here with Wonder Woman. You know, and there were two little cameos, so to speak, that paid nod to Batman and Superman. I wonder if you caught them. Now, the Batman one was pretty obvious because the whole movie is for a wraparound of a letter and a picture that Bruce Wayne sends her. That's right. That's the beginning and the end, so that's pretty obvious. But And I know you haven't seen the original Superman movie. There's a scene in there where in Wonder Woman where Wonder Woman snatches a bullet out of the, out of the air to save uh, Chris Pine's character. I forget his character's name. Well, there was a scene just like that with Clark Kent does that with Superman in the original, with Lois Lane in the original Superman. So do there was you, Do you homage. know if that was a direct nod? Have yes. you looked into that? It was, an homage, it was an homage. Wow, very cool. In a back alley. It was very, very similar. So it was well an homage. Done. Well done, Patty Jenkins. That's awesome. But I'll tell you another thing. This movie had a lot of pressure on its shoulders. Not it only did. is like things we talked about, it, DC's kind of faltering a little bit. Uh, this is a female-centric Wonder Woman, and you see how things were such backlash with a lot of female-centric things, the Ghostbusters reboot, you name it. There's a lot of things that just get kind of bashed. You had to fight that. You had to fight DC faltering, and you said it exactly. They just didn't let it get to them. They went out and just made a good movie. They weren't trying to tie everything into everything else. 
We'll tie it in in a little kind of a way. Here's a little memento and remember oh, and, back. And, and then, then they made it a good movie. And even with some of the other elements, like with with the secretary wor- who worked for Chris Pine's character in the movie, and um, and Wonder Woman being like, "Well, where I come from, that's slavery," yeah. or something like that. Just <laughs> a, a a little quip like that, which I remember seeing in the trailers. Um, it, just little things like that laced in, but it wasn't it wasn't too much of stuff like that. It was it was these great elements, and you could see the flip in the character characteristics with you know with Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman she is she's the one who is doing the saving and is in the is in that role Chris Pine's character is the one who needs saving sometimes and but they, there was some vice versa in mm-hmm. that too of course with the sacrifice that his character has to make in the end and and yet it, it still it fit those elements in and it changed the roles in that way but it didn't it didn't try to do that in a look at this kind of way it was it was very discreet and it, it worked really really well it poked fun in some of the misogyny in a way that if you were a guy sitting in the theater you didn't feel ashamed to be there like there are some movies that there is the case um but it poked fun at it and then it just went out and made a good movie like you said and at the same time it didn't feel pressure to have to have strong ties to these other elements in the dc universe because they were more concerned about building a film and a story than building a franchise. They needed to build up one of those pieces of the DC franchise, and they've done it. Now they got to do the others. It was very much a cornerstone character development yeah. kind of movie because I didn't see much, if any, tie into how might this fit into the upcoming Justice League no. movie. There, there was not really much of that. Other from, than the trailer in the beginning, that's about it. Right. That's that's all you you kind of get out of yeah. that. But uh, other than that, this was very much a we're building Wonder Woman's character movie. There wasn't a we're building it toward the next movie kind of thing that was that was built into it too much. Which I, I'm curious with Justice League coming out later this year if there will be any of that that they try to incorporate from this movie into that upcoming movie. But as far as just establishing the character of Wonder Woman, it worked pretty well for that. How it might piece into the upcoming movie, that's another story and another question in and of itself. And a question that maybe, yeah, it really does remain to be seen. But it it, it still built the character of Wonder Woman extremely well. Well, and there were things when you saw Wonder Woman in Batman Superman that are part of her mythos that just didn't show up. Because in Batman Superman, she's a background character that has a substantial part at the same time. This, I mean, so where are the bracelets? Where's the golden lasso? I didn't see the invisible jet, but that depends on which version of Wonder Woman you're talking about. True. World War One, there were no jets. Maybe that will come eventually with my character, sort of like in a similar vein. Each of the the different bat driving items yeah. came along during the Christopher Nolan movies. Well, and one thing that was so good with what the Avengers did was not every character, but a lot of the big characters, Captain America, Iron Man, so forth, they had their origin stories. So when you get together with the group assembling, whether it's you know, the Avengers or whether it's Justice League, you don't need to introduce these characters anymore. Everybody knows what their backstory is, what they can do, so on and so forth. So you get to skip over the introduction part. You just introduce this movie's guest characters, the bad guys, the antagonists, and any allies, um, and you move forward. So with the Justice League, you got to think about, you got all these guys like Aquaman. I haven't seen much about Aquaman at all, and other characters that'll be there too. I, I haven't seen much of those guys. Other than Batman, and we assume the resurrected Superman, which you know will show up, right. and Wonder Woman, beyond that, we don't know a lot of the background of We've these characters. We've seen the Flash in other yeah. media, but this is a different Flash, we would assume, correct? Mm-hmm. Something about the rights, pardon me, I had to take a drink there. 
Um, something about the rights that it's a different everything has to be brought up. Same thing with Quicksilver and the X Men movies. Uh, different actor for the different movies because right. of the rights. So yeah, but it should be an interesting dynamic to see how it all comes together. But Justice League is its own thing, and this is going to lead into it nice, and that's fantastic. But back to just Wonder Woman alone. What a summer movie. It's just, it's a good movie to go to. It's everything a summer movie should be. Get your popcorn, but it's more than just empty entertainment. It's got a little heart to it as well. Yeah, and here's the other thing about this too. DC didn't didn't need to totally reinvent the wheel. They didn't need to go down Marvel's path with what they needed to do to change their tone. They just needed to make things more cohesive, yeah. I felt like. And and Wonder Woman was an extremely cohesive movie. It it had a very well-outlined plot. Things strung together very well. They had good background on different things. They didn't try to cram too much into the movie, much like what happened with Batman versus Superman. They pieced everything together extremely well background then going into wonder woman going into the world and and trying to figure out the world as well and and then sort of the the rising toward toward the big climax that they that they put together it pieced together really well and it pieced together in a very brisk pace as well they they strung it all together extremely nicely um but they did so i still felt like it was a a darker kind of movie it it didn't feel quite as light and airy and and with that quip of humor that that the Marvel movies are so well known for this felt like a slightly darker toned version of of Captain America the the first avenger it it felt like a slightly darker toned kind of movie to that and yet there was still the element of hope that was that was mixed into it as well that Wonder Woman carried with her that that she tried to convey as she was as she was trying to achieve the things that that she felt she needed to do with going out there and saving the world which she made her big her big element that she was trying to do all throughout the movie that that continued to be her goal and her focus that showed through even though it, it still felt like a slightly darker tone as com- which DC has tried to play off of a darker brooding tone that they have tried to play off of with their movies i felt like it was still laced with that and yet there was still more hope and more plot that was conveyed with that at the same time you know one of the problems with things being overcooked like batman superman is it's hard to give the movie heart because there's so much exposition, there's so many characters, there's so many balls juggling in the air, it's hard to keep all that moving and give the movie heart. When you take a lot of that out, and it's pretty much a pared-down version, now you've got room for hearts. You get a lot of uh, moments where you get Chris Pine and Wonder Woman together, and there's a lot of, whether it's about their budding romance or about a fish out of water, that brings the heart to the movie, and that's what Wonder Woman was able to do by dropping all the stuff pretty much from what's leading into the Justice League. It was a movie that existed purely on its own legs. But even more so than that, so the movie was fantastic. And I'll tell you another thing. There was early buzz, long before any reviews. I think late spring, word was starting to come out, hey, we might have a problem with this movie. This really could be on the level of Batman Superman, if not worse. Whether that's true or not at the time, if that's the case, they've fixed it. They found what the problem was and fixed it. And it wouldn't be the first time that this movie's going off the rails. Uh, and they found a way to bring it back together, whether through editing or whatever the case. So if that was a problem and they were able to fix it, then that's a good thing for DC going forward. Uh, while the Marvel Universe has Kevin Feige, who's kind of at the reins, DC has kind of had a committee. They haven't really had that right. one guy that's been in charge. 
So they've the, had to change that a couple of times. They've like had to we, change like it, yeah. we discussed previously. So is somebody in this committee stepping up and getting you know one direction? Look, this is how we're going to do this. Get this direction. Let's all get together and do it. Or is the committee actually just finally firing on all cylinders to get things either fixed or working right? And will this be a tone that moves forward into Justice League and beyond? There's still a lot of talk about the Batman movie that's you know running at all kinds of problems. Right. So we'll see. But they kept some of the elements of their tone that they had previously had, and yet they mixed in more of the heart, more of the plot that was necessary, more of the background. They didn't try to go too bombastic like some of those other movies as far as hammering home these themes. The themes were more interlaced within Wonder Woman, and that's what really made it work well. By the way... I don't think the phrase Wonder Woman was uttered throughout the entire movie. No, I don't think I don't think I don't the, recall it being uttered at all. There wasn't even the words on the screen until you stayed 10 minutes into the credits. She was and just you Diana. Saw it. Yeah. yeah. It was a, it was a neat movie. It really was a really it was movie. a really good movie. Uh far cry from the 1970s Linda Carter a TV series. Um and this is a movie that's been germinating in one way shape or form for a long time to the point where even Sandra Bullock at one point was considered to be Wonder Woman that long ago and finally it took this long to get it but it was worth the wait. Big success for DC. Its own movie standalone. Yeah. Excellent on its own. And it whets the appetite for Justice League in a very, very big way and gives its main female superhero a really, really big movie. And that's a, that's an exciting one for all the ladies of the world out there because this was this was a terrific movie. You know, if you're if you're a feminist, there was a lot of reasons to love it. If you were just a movie fan, a lot of reasons to love it. There's a lot of groups with a lot of reasons to love this movie because it just happens to be a good movie with a good message. Uh, it's everything a summer movie should be, so there's no one I can think of that would really ought to walk away with this. Oh, man, it was just good. Before we shift gears here, we want to remind you that Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters, which is a great place to go and see these movies that we discuss, especially the current ones that are out in theaters right now, some of the older ones that we discuss. Well, they've they've gone and, and are by the wayside by now, at least as far as seeing in theaters. But hey, don't forget, Wednesday night or Wednesdays at 11, 10, 11 a.m., I forget what time exactly, they have Family Day, seven weeks all summer. Oh. Uh, 10 a.m. on Wednesdays, they're bringing back older, kid-friendly movies. Um, I forget what the, they've done. Kung Fu Panda. They've done a couple of movies. And they'll Terrific. Be doing throughout the summer. Uh, go check out for information. Uh, prices are really, really cheap, and they start at 10 a.m. on uh, Wednesdays. CECtheaters.com is probably the place to go, and you can check the show times then for Wednesday. But Bemidji Theaters, very happy to have them aboard as our sponsor for Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. So let's shift gears and, and talk about some big news in the movie dun, industry. Dun, 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 dun. This is the background music week. for you. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. As Dave puts the soundtrack in for the uh, the Star Wars music. Um, last week, the, the big news that came out last week, and mm. at least on the surface, it looks like troubling news, and yet when you look at the history of movies changing directors, you realize this isn't always a bad thing. Um, last week, Lucasfilm announced that they are removing Phil Lord and Chris Miller who were going to be the uh, co-directors of the still-untitled young Han Solo movie. They had done the Lego movie together, yes. correct? Yes. Uh, and they were going to do this young Han Solo movie, which still does not have a title to it. And they had been working through it. It was in uh, in production, and they were working through it. And they've decided, they being the powers that be at Lucasfilm, decided to remove them as co-directors. Um, 
Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy came out with a statement then last week about it. Lord and Miller came out with a statement too. Uh, they they used that that phrase, that cliche phrase, and they even described it as cliche as creative differences being why this happened. And they said it may be cliche, but nothing could be more truthful of just what exactly happened here. And then it was announced end of last week. The guy who is sliding into the director's chair will be Ron Howard, who will step in and do this still untitled young Han Solo movie. What does this mean? Are they going to have to go back and reshoot a lot of things? Are they going to have changes to the cast? What's going to go on with the production of it? How much is this going to change course from what they've already done? A lot of questions that are yet to be answered, but at least on the surface, when directors change, Dave... There's usually a feeling of panic that comes with it. I know I felt that when I first saw it. I was like, oh boy, they're changing directors. Kind of like last year before Rogue One when I was like, oh boy, they're reshooting a lot of things. What does this mean? It doesn't always necessarily mean bad things are going to come about, though. There's one word that you said that they did not say was amicable. It does not look like it was an amicable split. Creative differences, yes. Hollywood Reporter has kind of has kind of revealed that it was a bit there was a bit of a rift there as well, that it wasn't exactly amicable. What the talk is is that, you know, Kathleen Kennedy, you should understand, has been a executive producer and a producer for a long, long time with uh, Steven Spielberg and uh, George Lucas going all the way back to Raiders of the Lost Ark and I think even before that. So if you don't know who Kathleen Kennedy is, she's she knows her stuff. Lawrence Kasdan wrote this new Han Solo movie along with his own son, and he's got a pedigree in Lucasfilm also. He did a lot of the writing, if not the majority of the writing, of Empire Strikes Back. He wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark. He got very involved in this stuff. Well, he directed Empire. As well, Empire, no, it was Irvin Kershner directed. Oh, Empire it was Kershner. But that's he, right. he had yeah. a lot. Cast, of, Castan, I've seen his name attached to it so much, but yeah, that's why yeah. it was Kershner. Ka- yeah. Lawrence Kasdan is an occasional actor, usually a writer, an occasional director. Uh, he directed uh, Kevin Costner in The Bodyguard, so he's he's an old guard Hollywood guy, and he knows Star Wars. So if you think that you know he doesn't know his material, you ask about changing Empire Strikes Back. He wrote that, so. He knows his stuff. So between Kathleen Kennedy and Kasdan, they're looking at what they call the dailies. The dailies are the film that they shot that day, and they're taking a look at it, and they're realizing this is not the movie that I wrote, says Kasdan, that I wanted, says both of them. This was more of a comedy that was being a fa- uh, a, a sci-fi fantasy, where it needs to be the other way around. It needs to be a sci-fi fantasy with elements of comedy, but is not a straightforward comedy. And what the word is, is that it started out as a misunderstanding. Miller and Lord kind of were brought in to kind of do the Lego movie all over again. Well, they also did 21 Jump Street, so you can you can comedy. sort of see the direction of comedy that maybe they would have wanted to add in, because those are, are fun movies, yeah. th- those movies. You can imagine this Han Solo movie being a fun, freewheeling movie. That's what I'm really hoping that this is going to be, is, is a fun, freewheeling, swashbuckling young Han Solo not a comedy, per se. But though. would you say that Lego Movie or 21 Jump Street, they're fun, absolutely, no argument. Would you call them upbeat and uh, adventurous? 
Maybe mm-hmm. to an extent. To an extent, but is there? Would you think that ratio that's there would be appropriate for Star Wars? Take Twenty One Jump Street. You've got no with the new Han Solo. You've no. got young Han and the young answer Lando. is flat out no so with Twenty One Jump Street. So yeah. there, you've got it, and I think that's where they were going. They were going to do a different version of uh, Channing Tatum or um 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 oh the characters Jonah Twenty-one. Hill. Jonah Hill, thank you. Uh, they were going to kind of do that again, but now on the set of the Millennium Falcon, probably not the best mix. So I think that's what the problem was, is that it was becoming 21 Jump not Street in space. Not a direct comparison to Jonah Hill at 21 Jump no, Street, no, no. mind you. <laughs> talented cast, talented directors, talented writing, talented, talented, talented. But is that what you want the dynamic to be in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon? Probably not good for Star Wars. The vibe would be way off. Right. And you can't take Star Wars elements and change what it is at its core, because if you want to know how that works out, look at the prequel movies. Yep. Here's what some what a source close to Lord Miller was saying, and this is what is according to Hollywood Reporter. There were, quote, deep fundamental philosophical differences in the filmmaking styles that they wanted to go with as opposed to what Kennedy was expecting, as opposed to what Castan was expecting. They were also given, quote, zero creative freedom, quote, extreme scheduling constraints as well that they had to work under and never given enough days for each scene from the very beginning. So even they felt very handcuffed from the beginning, the the, the two directors themselves. That's at least according to that source um, that they that they were just they didn't feel like they could expand their creative horizons. But this this is the problem that that happens when you're a director or directorial team that is stepping into a world like Star Wars and something like Lucasfilm. You're operating under an overarching premise that is being laid down by that studio. You've got to meet that that standard or else. And that there's going to be problems then if you have a creative vision that you want to run with. We've talked about this before with Marvel. Marvel has allowed a, a pretty good degree of flexibility, and yet they are bringing in their people who they know, directors who they know are going to be on the company line to a T of what they are trying to do and accomplish. Well, here's something to understand. If For those that don't understand exactly how movies are made, producers are really the ones that shepherd a movie through from concept to screen. Directors basically do what the producers have hired them to do. Producers hire the directors, so the director works for the producers. Now, there are some people that wear multiple hats, Steven Spielberg, J.J. Abrams. They are producers, they are directors, they are writers, and they are very involved in their own process, so they have a lot of that creative freedom. Um, so that's something to understand. So these guys, they work for Kathleen Kennedy, you know, and Kathleen Kennedy's overseeing all of this. But secondly, you brought this up too. If Star Wars is what Star Wars is – then that's like having scrambled eggs that have something that doesn't have eggs in it. You know, you're expecting a certain ingredient. You're expecting certain things to be there. And if they're just missing, then you don't have Star Wars. You don't have scrambled eggs. You got something else. So how do you combine that and wanting to give some creative freedom? Because it sounds like that's what happened with the mismatch is that Lord and Miller wanted to have enough creative freedom, but it was too much in the eyes of the the higher-ups at Lucasfilm. I mean, it sounds like, uh, according to that same source, they wanted to give the actors a lot of creative freedom to to bring out the best in them with this performance. But then that that displeased Castan because it was so far removed from what he wanted the story to be. So how do you combine that, then, within something like Star Wars? Well, it's a good question, but even another point to that is that there was a lot of improvisation on set, and I think that's fine. 
But when it takes giant leap to the point where the story itself is becoming altered to accommodate these improvisations, that's a problem. Now, not that young Han Solo is going to have a sequel. It'll be like Rogue One. It's going to be its own thing, and that's it. Uh, the sequel would be the original Star Wars, if you want to look at it that way. Um, but how do you get into this where you can get creative license while still working within the constraints of something like Star Wars? For one, you have to have communication right off the get-go. If they thought that they were being hired to do 21 Jump Street again or Lego Movie again, not the case. If they've seen Star Wars at all, they know what the dynamic is. You have to find a way to work within that. I would say there's not one, as creative a guy as J.J. Abrams is, there's not one movie that he has done, not one TV show that he has done, that is what I would call in the vein of Star Wars. Maybe a little elements here and there, because he's been inspired by a lot of what came in his childhood by Spielberg and Lucas and others. But um, he found a way to really continue with the vein of Star Wars while being creative on his own right. I think Lord and Miller went in there thinking, we got this, and didn't really collaborate as much as they should have, didn't communicate as much as they should have, even... The Force Awakens was supposed to be a summer movie, and it just was getting a little crunch time. It wasn't really working out, so they added six months to it because it was more important that the movie be right than it come out on schedule. So instead of coming out summer of 2015, it came out Christmas time 2015. Yep. Fine. It was a great movie, and it was better for it if young Han Solo was scheduled for May, uh, this coming May of 2018, if that's going to hold, um, fine. But if they were still running into a crunch... You know, can we push this to Christmas? Sure. Been done before. We'd really love a yeah. summer movie, but we want this right rather than rushed. And this this has happened before here with the new regime with Lucasfilm and Disney combined. We've we've seen these creative elements get pushed back and forth before. We saw that a little bit with with Force Awakens. Gareth Edwards had to change things up a bit yeah. with uh with Rogue One and had to do the reshoots there. Now we have a complete directorial change that's gone on here as well. So they, they've got to find the right blend between creative freedom for the directors who they want to bring in for these future Star Wars movies and trying to stick to the 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 ethos that come with what Star Wars is. That's going to be the challenge so going I've got, forward. I don't think it's going to be that big a challenge because Ron Howard has a history with Lucasfilm. He directed Willow. You know, which was a George Lucas movie back in the 80s. Lucas also approached him yeah. about doing The Phantom Menace, but he he turned that down. And honestly, Ronnie, I think you made the right call there. <laughs> he he turned that down. He thought that it was it was too much for him to, to do something like that. But he is a huge Star Wars fan. So they're getting a guy who is not only a director who's got the, the chops and the credentials, but he's also he, he's also a guy who understands Star Wars and is going to really buy into what Lucasfilm is trying to do with this movie, which is uh, it's a home run for Lucasfilm, and it's perfect for Ron Howard, although I, I question now if Han Solo, if young Han Solo is going to have freckles and talk with a lisp. No, so. no. you got to look at his... <laughs> you mean we're not going to have Winthrop no, sitting in the, no. in the cockpit? you got to look at Ron Howard's body of work. He's got across the board, he's a fantastic director, he's won Oscars, um, some some great dramatic work, some heavy work. I mean, even go look at the Lucas, you know, interpretation with Willow. Go look at uh, the Val Kilmer character, uh, Mad Mardigan, I think was his name in Willow. That's basically a Han Solo esque character right there, and it was done very very well with a talented actor, talented cast, talented director. Uh, I have no problems 
with Ron Howard coming in to do Star Wars. I think it would be a natural fit as much as the Spielberg doing it. Yeah. So what's going to happen though is this: if they, if the team behind Star Wars, the producers and the writers, were not happy with where we're going, the questions you got to ask yourself are this. How much are they going to backpedal to get back to their original version? Right. How much of the Miller and Lord version will remain? Um, undoubtedly, some of it will. Um, what is this going to mean as far as the release date? Like we said, the release date right now is May of this coming May, 11 months from now, the time we're recording this podcast, so May of 2018. Will that hold or will they need to push it to Christmas now? And uh, on top of that, look at the past where other directors have been replaced in midstream. And we'll talk about this here in a minute. Yes. What is this going to mean for the cast? Was there somebody that was there on cast? Let's say Woody Harrelson, for example. And I'm just making this up, but let's just say Woody Harrelson had a close personal relationship with the directors. What? They're fired? Well, I'm not coming back. I'm a- Will they have to recast something? Will they have to reshoot scenes, not just because of the story elements, but because a cast member decided to walk in solidarity with the director? The easy reply to that is that money talks. But it's yeah. not always the easy reply because sometimes they can be really tied in with the directors. Now, there's there's a story, there's an analogy that I'll get into. You know where I'm going to go. I know that you've got a few other uh, past examples. Would you like to go first and talk about well examples? You have mentioned this one previously, at least in talking with me. You may have even mentioned it on one of our previous episodes. But we we have talked about your prime example, and it's it's often the one that that people think of first when it comes to movies that change director. In the middle of production. But I haven't heard of it. And as far as this coming up, I have not heard the analogy brought up once. And the analogy is this. And I could go really deep into this, and I won't because it'll take too long. But uh, I'll kind of break it out into brass tacks. Look at the original Superman movie from 1978. These were movies, and Superman 1 and 2 specifically. Uh, Richard Donner directed the original, and a guy named Richard Lester directed Superman 2. Now, the Silkins, they were a Swedish-producing uh, father-and-son duo. They got the rights to Superman in the late 70s, and they decided they were going to make Superman 1 and 2 and film them simultaneously, which they did, by and large. Things were running behind the scenes. They were running a little slow, so they stopped work on Superman 2, finished Superman 1, and then they were going to pick up Superman 2. That was the idea. And Richard Donner was directing both of them. So the problem was this. Um... Donner wanted to take the source material very seriously. The Silkins didn't necessarily care. They were all in favor of you know the humor and the slapstick and, and things. And that's why Superman 2 has a lot more of that in it than Superman 1. So when they finished Superman 1, the relationship between the Silkins and Donner was so strained to the point where it was just a fractured relationship, which is very similar to what's been going on with Han Solo, a fractured relationship. Yep. They said, don't worry, coming back for Superman 2, we're going to reshoot a lot of stuff and we're going to have something else come in. And that's another thing that will be interesting with the Star Wars movie. According to the Directors Guild, if you direct 51% of the movie, that's right. then it's your movie. That's the key. That's yeah. the key. So right, the word is now that the Lord and Miller had directed about 70% of the Han Solo movie. Wow. That so is a lot. If they're going to have Ron Howard just fill in the parts that they didn't do, would it still, by Directors Guild rules, still be a Lord and Miller directed by movie? So when Superman, they backed up and they did read shot scenes that there was nothing wrong with them. They just redid it so that they could have a different director direct them so that his name could be on the movie. So the theatrical version of Superman 2, Richard Donner's name appears nowhere because they just kind of erased over what he had done. 
So that's the brass tacks of what happened. There's a lot more to it. You can go in and look it up. In fact, there's a Donner version of Superman 2 that's, that's available right. that has a lot of his original scenes put back in. I've, I've read, at least from the two sources that I've been reading of, I've read that either version people have, have really not minded or, or have liked each version for different reasons, and you have said the same thing. Superman 2, the theatrical version, was a very good movie. It was a hit movie. It was one of the top movies of 1982, I think, when it came out, um, something like that. Um, it was a very good movie, but there's clearly elements that deviate from the tone of the original, which was very much a serious movie, had its own levels of you know comedic humor, of course, but then Superman 2 really goes into the slapstick stuff. Yeah, the production of that movie was very intentional that way. That's what I've read constantly yeah. about that, that they wanted to go that direction with it, and that's why the directorial change happened was that they wanted to go that direction. So if you really want to learn more about it, you can look it up. Even Wikipedia is not a bad spot to go. But it's the biggest example of what I can think of something that is similar to what's happening now to this point. Yep. Not exactly – but as far as the fact that it's a huge tentpole movie, everybody knew who Superman was, and they had just released the original. It was huge. It was nominated for Best Picture. You know, it was huge. Yeah. And then they replaced the director halfway through the production of Superman 2, and one of the fallouts was this. Um, there were people that left in disgust. Uh, Margot Kidder, who played Lois Lane, she was so adamant against the change that she was barely in Superman 3, allegedly, as revenge for her being so persnickety on the reshoots. I've even read that Christopher Reeve was pretty conflicted about the change. Everybody was more or less conflicted, but only to the point where they were just, they were vocal about it, but then they shut up and did their job. The one notable exception was Gene Hackman. That's right. Who played Lex Luthor. You'll notice if you see the Superman 2 version there's a lot of moments where it's clearly Lex Luthor, but it's not Gene Hackman. It's some a body double shot from behind, and the voiceover work wasn't done. So it's clearly somebody's voice that's not Gene Hackman's voice because he said, well, you're going to fire Donner? Well, then I'm not coming back, and he didn't. That's right. And they had to finish the movie without him. Again, money doesn't always talk. Yeah. Even though it, it can usually make a big difference, it doesn't always talk. So what's going to happen with this movie? Now, the talk is... You know, Donner wanted to stay true to the source material, and the producers wanted to go to the slapstick. And that part seems reversed here. You know, the Kennedy and Kasdan, they want to keep the original Star Wars mythos, while Lord and Miller wanted to do something more humorous. Odds are it's probably going to go back to its original version. Second part is how much are they going to reshoot? Probably a significant amount. Uh, if for well, nothing, they were already in the Canary Islands, so yeah. they might have to go back. Yeah, well, it depends on what they shot there too. If it was overly comedic, then that might be the case. Oh boy! But is the, if, if also they want this to be a Ron Howard movie, then they're going to have to, by directors' guilds, at least have fifty-one percent of this movie shot by Ron Howard, even if it's shooting scenes that have no problems with them, just so that he can shoot them, so that they can make it a Ron Howard movie. Right. And thirdly. What's going to happen with a cast? Will somebody? Will there be a Gene Hackman moment in this where someone's going to say, well, heck with you, I'm walking away, and will it be to the point where they might have to recast the character completely? I certainly hope not when it comes to, I think of Donald Glover, yeah. Amelia Clark. I'd hate to see that. Even uh, um, Aiden, how exactly do you say? I don't know. Yeah, his, well, the, the guy who's playing Han Solo. Well, yeah. And even if it's not about loyalty, it might just be about, you know, scheduling. You know, Amelia Clark, for example, she's wrapped into Game of Thrones. Well, if they're going to start shooting Game of Thrones on this date and they need to redo Star Wars scenes and that's going to conflict with that date, Amelia might be into a tight spot. Now, if they can work around it, I'm sure they would love to. She's very talented. But if they can't, 
uh, you might have to make that decision and reshoot all of her scenes with a new actor, actress, and that's not the first time that's ever happened either. Right. Alden Ehrenreich, I there, think is the best go. way yeah. that I can put it. I, I'm pretty sure that's it anyway. So that's the closest I can get. There's been examples where directors have been removed in mid-production. It's rare. It's not like it's never happened. But the closest comparison I can see to this point would be the Superman, Superman 2 fiasco. Read up on it on your own. It's a very interesting right. read. And if you go watch them up, and I know you have yet to see these movies, and I loan them to you. They're two movies, but I'll give you three because there's two versions of Superman 2 where yeah. you can clearly see yep. it spelled out. Now, there are, in, in case you are concerned regarding this change in directors for the, the upcoming young Han Solo movie, which I was kind of concerned when I first saw that. I was like, oh boy, that, that reads problems. Well, A... I thought back then to Rogue One and the reshooting that they did, and that ended up being a great movie. And then B, there are other films in the past that have changed director, and they still did very well, either commercially or or critically or both. And there are plenty of examples. I mean, you, you talked about Superman 2 and the fact that it did pretty well. But divided into two camps. You're in pre-production. You haven't yep. yet to go in front of a camera. For whatever reason, you change directors. That's category one. Category two is what we're facing now where you've got a significant amount of footage right. shot and now you're making a change and especially the director's chair. That's exceedingly rare. It does not happen, especially on giant, giant movies like this where there's so much money at stake. The only other one I can mention between Star Wars and Superman. So category two. So yes. when you've got a little list here, we'll see which falls into which camp. Yeah, and you can, you can sort of make that distinction as we go here through this list, but I, I found some great movies that have changed director. One that I knew of, but this reminded me of it when I was reading this list, because I remember seeing this on TCM one time, and Ben Mankiewicz, I think, was talking about this. Spartacus changed yeah. directors in, in the middle of, of their production. Not exactly the middle. It was by week three that they were over budget, they were running late, there were, there were some real problems going on universal clearly wanted to see some changes here um kirk douglas was a big part of the production even though he was starring in this movie he was at the helm of this in oh, a yeah. pretty major way he was against anthony mann being the director mann was put in charge against douglas's wishes things were not going well they got him out of there and then douglas insisted on picking the next guy who would step in and, and that was did. stanley kubrick yeah. and then kubrick stepped in Spartacus became one of the great films of all time. Even though Kubrick and Douglas didn't exactly get along as far of create as far as creative planning, um, Kubrick wanting a lot more freedom than than what uh, than than what was given to him by Douglas, but still ended up being a sensational movie regardless. So one of the reasons it's my favorite Kubrick movie because it's not a Kubrick movie. <laughs> What, you don't like 2001? I like 2001, but it's just, it's there's parts of it that are just bizarre, you know, to the point where you kind of lose me. Right. There's part of it's supposed to be bizarre and mysterious, but then it's a little too bizarre and mysterious, you know there, what I mean? There are elements of that in other in other Kubrick movies as well that, that he All did. All Kubrick movies. Well- Kubrick is a taste that's kind of sour on my palate. I, there's talent, absolutely- but that's a whole other thing. That's a whole other tangent we can get into. Yeah, he he certainly had his elements. My favorite Kubrick movie is still Dr. Strangelove or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb, which I think is one of the funniest movies of all time um, because it's darkly funny. Uh, so anyway, that was one, Spartacus. Would you believe that the outlaw Josie Wales had a change in director? I hadn't heard of that one, no. It, that was another one. And this created a rule that you cannot have... And one of your actors or actresses step into the seat 
after and and be the person to to essentially be the reason why they were were removed. Um, no actor or producer can sack the director of production and then take over the job themselves, which was essentially what Clint Eastwood did um, when there was there was reportedly um, a bit of a vying for the affection of one of the uh, one of the female leads in the movie, and there was a apparent and then. There was apparently some back and forth that happened between Eastwood and Philip Kaufman, who was named the director of the movie. But Ooh. the outlaw Josie Wales still went on to be very good and one of the best that was directed by Eastwood. But how he got into the director's chair was kind of problematic. The Wizard of Oz went through some yeah, directorial changes. That's there true. were there were a, a couple of changes that that ended up happening here. Um, here was just a few. When they started rolling the camera, Norman Tarong was directing. Then he left the production. Richard Thorpe then took over, shot for two weeks, including meeting Scarecrow on the Yellow Brick Road, according to this article. And then he was gone as well, but none of his material made the final cut. George Cukor was then in. Then Victor Fleming stepped in, and then he was gone by the end of production. The last footage was shot by King Vidor with a new producer doing work behind the camera. There were actually technically six people who directed the wizard of oz at different stages four of them got any material into the final cut whatsoever and yet it is still one of the great movies of history but what does that tell you it was not a director's movie that studio drove that picture the people behind the scenes that did not have director in their title pushed that movie somebody tried to put in creative freedom and they were pushed out and even if you watch that movie with six directors, even four of which made the final scenes, you'd think there'd be a big disparagence between the you know the the texture, so to speak. Yeah, I don't pick it up. I just don't. Now there's a lot of interesting dynamics there, just because of the fantastical nature of the story. But that Ben, that that was the 1930s too. Things were right. very different back then. Yeah. And there was another movie at a similar time, another titanic movie in the history of of cinema in Hollywood that had similar problems at that time, and that was Gone with the Wind, which had enough problems in production trying to take the source material and put it on screen. I mean, when you're doing a movie like that, that is going to be a bear to put together. And it was with trying to get it pared down into something script worthy and then with with who is going to sit in and direct George Cukor, who had been a part of of The Wizard of Oz, had to step in uh, for Gone with the Wind, did three weeks of footage. There were problems behind the scenes, though, disagreements. Apparently, um, the producer, David O. Selznick, wasn't really a big fan of Cukor's. Clark Gable apparently didn't get along very well with him, and then he ended up leaving the film. So um, Victor Fleming then stepped in, almost finished it off, but then collapsed nearly three months after taking over, and then Sam Wood finished off the rest of the shooting. In spite of all of that, Gone with the Wind is still one of the the great movies in in history, and and still was able to to make such a leave such a huge impact. How about a more recent example? Moneyball went through yep. a director change. Yep. Had you heard about that? I had. Steven Soderbergh. This this surprised yeah. me. Steven Soderbergh was originally the guy who was going to direct it. He wanted to do almost a documentary style with interviewing. The, the players and athletes and coaches involved with, uh, with what happened with the whole Moneyball story and was going to do something very different from what ended up being done uh, in the end um, with, with what actually came together under director Bennett Miller, which it ended up being 
uh, one that did terrifically well, yep. as, not only at the box office, but also at uh, the Academy Awards then later on in the year for as far as nominations was concerned. But that's one of those category ones where he'd helped to shepherd it through. The pre-production uh, brought in his old Ocean's Eleven buddy, Brad Pitt, because he directed all the Ocean Eleven movies. Uh, and then some, for somewhere along the line before they ever got in front of a camera, left, another guy came yeah. in, and they went from there. So that's one of those category ones. Plus, there were there were three screenwriters um, yep. who were who did this, but one guy did it twice, and that was Steve Zalian, yep. who was was first hired. Um, then Aaron Sorkin replaced him, and then Zalian came back in again. So it was a it was a, a, a circus as far as who was in and out, and just kind of a carousel as far as that was concerned. But they got it right in the end, and it ended up being a, a terrific movie uh, with the way that they put it together. All of this to say, these examples are proof that even if there is a directorial change, that's not the end of the world. Now, there are bad movies. There are plenty of bad movies or movies that didn't do very well that had director changes. Pixar has had a lot of those. I, I was reading this one article that said everyone thinks of, of Pixar as, as everyone is riding around on rainbows there and, and, and taking care of everything with, you know, with a happy freelancing type of mentality. Well, no, there have been a lot of changes Toy Story 2, Cars 2, Brave, I think Ratatouille was another one. They've had a lot of changes for who was in charge creatively with trying to put some of those movies together. Some very successfully. Toy Story 2, definitely. Ratatouille was another one. Some that were not as good. Cars 2, definitely not as good. Brave was only okay. You know, that that had these, these changes in ideology that happened in the midst of it, but some of them still worked regardless, and that's the the hope that I think people can have who might be concerned over the young Han Solo movie is that there are plenty of examples of movies that have had director changes that still found their footing, found the direction that they wanted to go in, and they were okay in the end, even if there had to be a lot of changes that took place. As long as the stars are kept intact, as far as the creative team, as long as that's kept intact, and again, we come back to this over and over again with this podcast, if the story and the elements behind the story are really sound and well put together, there's a lot to be hopeful for. And I think Ron Howard's going to give this movie a really good chance because he believes in the Star Wars uh, mythos that come with that. He's a fan for one. He has a body of work that shows that he can do this, including previous work with Lucasfilm that clearly was a Star Wars movie set on Middle Earth or whatever you want to describe the land of Willow as. Uh, clearly it was a take on a, a Moses, Lord of the Rings kind of thing, kind of Lord-esque, whatever you want to call it. He can do this. I have no doubt. Now, Lord and Miller, fantastic filmmakers, but I don't think they got it. I think they've got their brand of movie making. They might like Star Wars. Well, let's do our movie. Let's do Star Wars and put lightsabers in it and blah, 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 is what I'm getting the concept of. I don't think that's what Star Wars is. I don't think they got it. Ron Howard gets it. Absolutely. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters, and we're very pleased to have them as our sponsor for the podcast. That's a pretty good round for today, Dave. Yeah. That's a very good round, getting into some of the nitty-gritty on some of the current events in film right now, both one that is doing exceptionally well at the box office and as far as setting a new trend and a new tone in many regards for DC and for women superheroes, and talking about a movie that 
in production at least has had some issues here, but maybe just maybe has the direction that it's hoping for now moving forward as it hurdles toward its May of 2018 release. Still at this point, anyway. Question mark, question mark. Yes, perhaps. So we'll keep an eye on things and continue to keep an eye on those news pieces. Heck, we might have to do an emergency podcast sometime in the future if there's something really big that hits the uh, the movie scene. We'll let you know, though, if that's the case. Hey, at least we're not getting chased out today because I don't think they're going to be chasing anything in their current condition. But hopefully, allegedly, possibly, Rick and Nick will make their debut for however many episodes it's been. Yeah, right. This is Joel Hoover. (laughs) I'm Dave Brooks. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you at the movies.